Hey fam, welcome back to the show. I am broadcasting, looking out a window at beautiful, sunny, blue California skies. Needed a little change of scenery and uh, it was just what the doctor ordered, but welcome back to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm Dylan Bowman. Thank you guys for being here. Always appreciate your attention. Adam Campbell is our guest today the great Canadian mountain athlete who really was one of my earliest inspirations as a young aspiring trail runner. Um, And he has been a veteran on the circuit for many, many years, many strong performances to his name over the past decade, decade and a half, probably at this point. But Adam's story is much bigger than winning races and being a great athlete. Adam has really been through some stuff. He has been through some indescribable, overwhelming hardship in the past several years. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, will know that back in 2016, Adam sustained life-threatening injuries in an accident while he was out in the mountains on a long traverse of a mountain range in the Canadian Rockies with Dakota Jones and Nick Elson. And then a few years later, after healing from that trauma and slowly returning to health, Adam tragically lost his wife, Laura Kosakowski, to an avalanche in a backcountry skiing accident. And Adam has admirably been an open book about this grieving journey. And I am honored that he would be willing to talk about that process with me here on the podcast. This, I'm not gonna lie, is a pretty heavy episode, but it's also a good one. It's also a long one. (laughs) So I'm gonna keep the intro short, but I hope you guys find some hope and some strength from Adam's story. It really is a remarkable one. As usual, the Free Trail Podcast is made possible by Speedland, the startup trail equipment brand from Portland, Oregon. I actually had coffee with Dave and Kevin last week in Portland, and they gave me a sneak peek of a new footwear product that they're working on that I am super excited about. I am hoping to receive my prototypes in March, and I just can't wait. But for now, go check out the SLPDX, the debut footwear product from the brand that is out now, my shoe of choice. I actually just did about 25 miles in it a couple of days ago in beautiful Marin County, California. And they are very, very nice. You can go get a pair for yourself. Find it at runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 with a capital F for 15% off your purchases. Thank you so much to Adam for doing this. Thank you guys for being here. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Adam Campbell. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. How are you, Dylan? Doing great. Doing great. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah. No, thanks. It's a huge honor. You've, uh, you know, you've accompanied me on many a run or a ski tour recently. So I, uh, it's, it's, a, it's cool to be a part of this. I listened to one with Jim yesterday, actually, while walking my dog. And yeah, what a, uh, you know, two legends of the sport. It was awesome. Oh, thanks so much, man. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, for me, it's, it's such a great excuse to be able to sit down with people like Jim and people like you and all the other amazing athletes and guests that I've had on the show. And uh, it's a true joy for me. And uh, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. And, you know, we've been exchanging texts and emails about it for quite some time and 
here we are already February of 2022 and we're finally doing it. But, you know, you and I sort of came up in the sport at the same time, more or less, you know, sort of like the turning into the 2010s era of the sport an exciting time. And, uh, I always really looked up to you. I mean, I felt like you were part of the cohort of athletes who I really drew a lot of inspiration from and, you know, yourself and Gary Robbins, the two sort of Canadian heroes, along with Ellie Greenwood on the women's side. And then, you know, that was the era of Anton Kropichka and Kyle Skaggs and Hal Kerner. And anyway, like I've always just really like admired you as an athlete and especially like your transformation. And I, I actually wanted to start our conversation in the natural place. And that is in, with triathlon, because cool. I've always known this about you. I always knew you were on the national team and on that Olympic path, but we've never talked about it. And I'm a huge fan of triathlon, especially like the ITU stuff. So let's start there. Talk about that, that part of your athletic career and, and maybe how it transitioned into being such a mountain sports stud. Yeah. Well, no, well, well, thanks. And no, I mean, those early days were really cool. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure you can really be put in the same box as Ellie. I mean, she's definitely a a league above, but, uh, no, no, those were really, really fun years, but yeah. So how I got into triathlon, um, in 1999, I, uh, yeah, 1999, I'd actually been, uh, I was working at outward bound, um, as a canoe guide for the summer. And, uh, it was really cool sort of doing these four day to up to 20 day canoe trips in the backcountry of Northern Ontario. And, but we'd come back to this base camp. And when I was there, um, I, I grew up swimming, um, and I'd always sort of been a decent runner, but I never really like trained for, for sports specifically. Um, and, uh, I was at this, this sort of the, the home camp and there was a guy there training for triathlons. And so I'd get in the water and swim with him and I had a mountain bike up there. And so we go on gravel roads and mountain bike on the gravel roads and, you know, run together and then later that summer, uh, I signed up for a triathlon and it happened to be the junior Canadian triathlon championships. And I, uh, I finished, uh, fifth or sixth at it, which, um, for whatever reason qualified me for the junior national team. Um, so I got to compete at the, the junior world triathlon championships, which are Montreal, Canada that year. And it was a really big year because, uh, triathlon was going to the Olympics in the year 2000. So that Olympic or sorry, that world championships was one of the qualifying races for the Olympics. Yeah. And it's where Simon Whitfield qualified for the Olympics. And he won gold that year, didn't he? And then Simon won gold in 2000. Yeah. And I was going to a, a university at the time in uh, Kingston, Ontario. And Simon grew up in Kingston. And I'd started running with the cross country running team because I was like, it seemed like a pretty good way of training for triathlon. And so I was able to walk onto the cross country team there. And Simon came and trained with us at the, with the cross country for you did a cross country workout and we were running together and I was, you know, sort of able to keep up with him on some of the intervals. And he was like, Hey, you're a triathlete, you're a young guy. We've got this um, training center going out in Victoria, Canada, uh, which is on the other side of the country. Yeah. Um, how would you like to come and train with us? And I was not really into school at the time. I was much more into running around in my speedo. And, uh, and the Olympic also, gold medalist is recruiting yeah, you. Like the Olympic gold medalist is telling <laughs> me that I might have some potential. <laughs> and um, so I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. And so I, I actually dropped out of university and uh, flew across the country and literally 
landed at the airport in Victoria in December of um, 2001. And like, I called him and I was like, hey, I'm at the airport. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, literally, I'm at the airport. And he's like, well, do you have somewhere to stay? And I was like, <laughs> no, not really. He's like, well, come stay with me. And so I ended up moving in with the Olympic gold medalist in triathlon. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really cool. And um, we had... At the time, it was an amazing training center. So we had Greg Bennett, who was the world number one ranked triathlete in the world. Yep. Australian um, guy, right? Australian yep. guy, yeah. Who also has a, a very good podcast as yep. well. Um, yep. Well worth listening to. And then uh, we had Peter Reed, who'd won Ironman Hawaii multiple times yep. training at the training center. Canadian guy, yeah. Canadian guy from Victoria. And his his wife at the time, Lori Bowden, had also won Ironman uh, Hawaii. And so I was instantly dropped into this center of excellence in triathlon which is pretty cool. So like literally my first day there arriving on the pool deck and I'm like Olympic gold medalist, world champion, Ironman Hawaii champion. And then like other, um, you know, some of the other top triathletes in the world sort of recognize that something good was going on in Victoria. So they'd all come out and train. And so I was able to train with some of the best athletes in the world there, which was, it was a really, really cool experience. And I quite quickly realized that, you know, while I had some talent, I was definitely not those guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, but, cool. but you were on sort of the Olympic path, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was trying to be, um, there was a, you know, people from across Canada came out there to go train at this center. And so it was, you know, in one regards, it was incredible because I got this like really deep learning into how to be a professional athlete on one, on one hand, like how do you actually earn a living as an athlete? Mm-hmm. And then how do you train as a professional athlete as well? And I was you know, like literally doing all the training, you know, like I was living, eating, sleeping, training with the best guys in the world. Yeah. Um, so there was, you know, there's no doubt that I was doing what needed to be done ultimately. Um, and like on, on paper, theoretically, I had um, like an outside shot at qualifying, um, but I was never quite a good enough swimmer. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I grew up swimming, you have, like the style of swimming in that, in the ITU racing is uh, you have to be quite explosive for the first two or 400 meters to be able to get to the front of the pack. And, you know, even though you said you look up to me, I'm like, I'm five, six, like not many people look up to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm getting I'm five, seven on a tall day, right? Metaphorically. Like, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd get quite beaten up at the start of those swims. And so I'd start, uh, you know, the, the, the bike portion at a bit of a disadvantage. And I also don't have the most natural raw power yeah. on the bike, you know, so I wasn't able to, like I'm not bridging up to the the Simon Whitfields and the Greg Bennett's of the world by myself on the bike. Um, so if I could get lucky and sort of suck wheel and get drawn up to the front pack, I would get the odd good result. But um, it was one of those if you know if the cards played out in my favor, it could work on the right day. But ultimately, it, it didn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know I'm a big fan of the sport of triathlon, and I always sort of knew that you and Simon had that relationship. I probably listened to every podcast Simon's ever done. I'd love his attitude and enthusiasm and his philosophy about, you know, sport and, you know, Mm -hmm. just your story about you arriving at the airport and him inviting you to stay somebody who would theoretically be like a competitor for a spot on the team. You know, I don't know him personally, but, um, 
I feel like that's uh, an example of how I would expect him to act as somebody who only knows him through through interviews. This great Canadian champion, Olympic champion, triathlete, and you know, you just mentioned something that I actually wanted to talk about, and that is like the fact that, and you've written about this recently in a blog post about how you've basically been a pro athlete since you were 18 years old, and that now in your 40s, as a 40-something, that the ego and the identity that's always been wrapped up in being this high-performance, world-class athlete is sort of softened a little bit. Talk about that, because I think it's a really interesting thing as somebody who's been a pro athlete for more than half of their entire life. And it's really hard to kind of let go of that identity, isn't it? No, it is for sure. I mean, and you know, the, the definition of pro athlete has shifted quite a lot in those 25. I, I turned 43 tomorrow. <laughs> so, Happy birthday, man. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. So literally 25 years. Um, but yeah, so it shifted quite a bit. Cause so when I started out in the sport, it was, it was basically purely a results-based game. You know, it was, are you, you know, you top five in the world, you get this amount of money, are you top yeah. 10 this amount? And, uh, you know, and it sort of down the line, whereas now the definition of pro athlete is, has definitely changed. I think, um, you know, having, having top performances, um, is, is still really, really important, but you can kind of create that identity a little bit. I mean, look at something like Phil Guymont, um, who has the, Perfect retirement ever yep. YouTube channel, which is which is awesome. I mean, he he was never, you know, he was he was a top level pro, but he wasn't one of the best in the world at what he did. Yeah. But he's still very much a pro athlete, even though he's theoretically retired. Well, you know, in his Twitter bio, it says the unprofessional cyclist, you know, yeah, and it's exactly. such a brilliant way to brand it, right? Because he's not racing on the world tour anymore, but he still earns his living as a cyclist, but it's more on the lifestyle and content creation side. So it's just a great thing to riff on the yeah, changing evolving I mean, dynamic of being a pro athlete. But he also still has the credibility of those of those results at one point, and he still is out like you know crushing these yeah. you know <laughs> these hill climbs, which is you know it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty fun to follow what he does for sure. Um, yeah. Or even you know like Lachlan Morton, um, you know, is arguably more famous for his uh, you know his, his big bike packing missions and his sort of solo adventures. And even though he still races on the pro tour, his, his value to brands is so far so beyond his rollers. Yeah. As a, you know, a domestique of some sort or a hill climb. Um, yeah. I just read yeah. an article about both those guys. Maybe this is why it's fresh in your mind as well. I think it oh, was no, on the outside. Article. Yeah, it was, well, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll try and add yeah. it to the show notes if I can find it, but I'm pretty sure it just came out a couple of weeks ago and effectively the point of the article was this, this sort of thing that you're talking about and the evolving landscape of being a pro athlete and how, sports fans are consuming things in a different way and athletes are delivering value to brand partners in a different way. And they use Lachlan as a great example in that his alt tour de France, where he rode the entire tour last year, including Mm -hmm. the, you know, sections where the riders who are actually doing the tour, take the bus. He rode the entire distance of it and actually beat the tour by like four days or something like that. Yeah, and in, in, in flip flops. Yes, yeah. and so but very much representing the culture and the spirit of cycling, and that his—I think it was 
his social impressions rivaled the social mm-hmm. impressions of the athletes who are actually doing the races. And so to what you're saying, it's like, he's delivering a different value, right. Than if he were a domestique trying to shepherd the team leader up to the Von two or whatever. Right. Yeah, so no, no, it's, it's yeah. really, you know, he, um, he captures the imagination. He's also, you know, he's obviously, I, I don't know him personally, but he just, he comes across as a really likable person and yeah. he just genuinely loves to ride his bike. And that's yeah. just so relatable for people. Yeah. And he's yeah. also clearly just a mega badass as well, like mega which, which sort of adds, adds to it. And um, it's interesting. I mean, I've been following, like, I'm really into watching um, like, like mountain movies or like, you know, ski movies and stuff. And up to recently, a lot of, through the adventure film world has been, um, you know, like ski porn, you know, like it's just like big slasher cuts and stuff. And now like story seems to be much more relevant and actually doing a much deeper dive into personality and background of athletes. And I, and personally, I mean, maybe it's just a sign of me maturing, but that, I'm much more interested in that as well. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, there, no, there's still, there's still is a place for like the huge hawk. And I'm just, I'm the first one to be like, that was, rad, <laughs> that was super cool. But then I also want to know, be like, what was your motivation to do that? Like, why did you choose to huck a 120 foot cliff? And what is going through your mind when you're doing or not? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. man, what a perfect place to start. And what a perfect segue, because, you know, really the reason I want to have you on in addition to being a fan of yours and an admirer of yours for more than a decade now, I mean, truly you were one of the guys I looked up to when I found the sport back in 2008. Right. And really in the last five or six years, man, you've been through the fucking ringer, man. And as somebody who doesn't know you like super well personally, but who has looked up to you, it's been like crazy to witness. Right. And to your credit, you've been an open book about everything and never held anything back. But I mean, to what we're talking about, you know, social media is like a double-edged sword, right? Mm -hmm. And it is more compelling, at least for me, to learn more about the human being, you know, and the culture and the spirit and the motivation more so than it is to just talk about like, Hey, what was the workout that you did that contributed most to this spectacular performance? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like you've just like, you've been a pro athlete for a long time and you've also dealt with just these massive tragedies, you could call them. And I want to sort of go into that a little bit, understanding that you've traversed that territory a number of times in conversation, but more so just kind of open it up with this kind of question of, you know, has your history of being a pro athlete helped you to navigate this really difficult period of your life that it seems like you've been going through for the last five or six years, or is there something about that history that's like made it harder? It's made it more difficult for you to come to terms with the different situations you found yourself in. That's an interesting question. Um, so I, I would say, and so my the first sort of um, personal challenge I dealt with was um, so so prior to, to to Laura, I was actually married to uh, to another triathlete, um, and she was an Olympian in triathlon, and we we got divorced in twenty. 12, I want to say, um, 
Well, really, we separated in 2012 and, and it really, it was a bit, of, it was a shock to me at the time for sure. Mm-hmm. And I did not deal with it. Like the way I coped with it was to just bury myself in sport. And really for a number of years after that, a lot of the races I did, I was, I was frankly, I was quite numb. Like I, I kind of just didn't feel pain. It's, it sounds kind of weird, but I would do these races totally numb and, um, I could go really hard and, you know, it was, it was a nice mental escape from it, but there was no real joy at the finish line. You know, like I'd finished these things and I was, I was just all kind of empty. Mm-hmm. Um, but my coping mechanism was to bury myself physically all the time. Um, and, and I, and I kind of carried that through to all, a lot of my interpersonal relationships as well. I was like, frankly, a, a bit of like a, a bit of an asshole, um, to people that were close to me and I was really, really guarded and did not get any kind of counseling at the time or anything. And, um, in retrospect, I, I see that now, um, at the time I didn't really. And when I, when I met Laura, um, I was still, I, I, you know, I still hadn't really dealt with, with that separation and sort of the, the lack of trust that, you know, that kind of broke me in that initial marriage. And when, um, uh, Dakota Jones and Nick Elson and I were trying to do this traverse in Rogers Pass when I had um, a, a bad accident. I was actually, Laura and I had started seeing each other and we'd actually broken up a few days before that. And one of the reasons I was out doing that big traverse, um, it was kind of a, like, I just need to go and do something big, get my mind off it. Like, you know, um, or whether it was an ego thing or just, I needed to go and numb myself in the mountains for a day. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure. It's hard, hard to really pull it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of the reasons I was out doing that, that big traverse that day. Which and, ultimately resulted in a near death fall for you. I wonder no, if exactly. you've ever, ha, yeah. have you ever thought about that of like, maybe that was your wake up call, right? Of like, you can't run from this anymore. Right. Oh, 100%. No, there's yeah. no, no doubt in my mind that that, like that absolutely changed a lot about me. Wow. Um, no, it was in a very profound way. I mean, I mean, I, there's, I shouldn't be alive. Like there's, there's no, it's just pure dumb luck that I'm not, you know, one that I'm alive and two, that I'm not, you know, fully, you know, that I, that I still have like a relatively well-functioning body. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just for, for anybody who doesn't know, I um, we were doing this sort of mountaineering traverse in Rogers Pass, British Columbia, which is um, it's sort of this it's it's a proper like fifth class mountaineering traverse. You're, you're crossing glaciers, and um, it was going to be about a thirty mile, um, eight thousand meter uh, traverse, like ridge traverse, uh, linking up about fourteen peaks. And, it's not um, just like a little trail run or an old yeah, trail no, it's, it's, like yeah, it's definitely not a trail run. Proper objective, sure. yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, as we were scrambling up one of the peaks um, on, on kind of, you know, fourth to maybe low fifth class terrain, um, and it, it, was, it was probably the worst rock on the entire route, a block pulled out on me and I fell. Hard to, hard to know exactly, but a, a couple hundred feet, a few hundred feet. Um, and I it was very ledgy and I tumbled down the ledges. Um and for whatever reason, um, I, I survived, but I broke my back and my hip and I had lacerations across my body. And uh, we, we looked at the weather quite carefully uh, prior to doing the traverse. And um, we saw that we had a, a good weather window. So that 
I was able to get rescued really quickly. Um, and both uh, Nick Elson and Dakota Jones, who are, you know, both worthy of uh, <laughs> interviews, <laughs> but like, yeah. you know, uh, far more than I am um, for their accomplishments um, are, uh, you know, incredibly well-skilled mountain athletes as well. Um, and they were able to, you know, to sort of stabilize me and, um, call, call for, call for help. Yeah. But, uh, no, that, that incident definitely, uh, changed me one, you know, I, I was immobile, you know, I, I, I couldn't walk for, for six weeks and I was really, really scared. Like I, you know, I should have died and I was incredibly humbled by my time in the hospital, um, sort of dealing with the reality of like, it was kind of a, like, what the hell are you doing with your life here? Yeah. Um, so it literally was like a huge, uh, wake up call in, in a lot of ways and made me face myself in, in really, really dark, deep ways. And, um, the reason I pulled through was the love of Laura and my family. And then, you know, just being incredibly vulnerable because I was like, I was reliant on these total strangers for the most basic tasks. Like I literally couldn't wipe my own ass. Yeah. You know, like I was having a call. I remember sitting in my own filth at three o'clock in the morning because I was like, I don't want to call a nurse to clean me up right now. And then eventually being like, why not? Like, it's just ego. Just, just do it. And just having this deep gratitude for these people who I didn't know and whose names I don't remember necessarily, but that I owe so much to. Yeah. Yeah. So in a weird way, it's almost like this accident allowed you to, begin to start healing from the dissolution of your first marriage and for you to finally come to terms with that pain and therefore create this new life with your new partner, Laura, who you had broken up with the day before. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no, and it, it, it very much did. And, you know, through that time I, um, I started uh, doing quite a lot of pain meditation because I was in a lot of physical pain. And the pain meditation led me into more just like personal meditation and more journaling and drawing, um, which sort of led me down a path of like deep self-reflection because all of a sudden I couldn't run away. Like I literally couldn't run, you know, <laughs> I couldn't move. Um, so I was, I was forced to just sit. And Isn't that crazy, dude? It, it's similar on a much smaller scale, not to compare myself to you, but just to share a personal anecdote from my own history of injury. Cause in 2019, when I broke my left ankle, mm -hmm. I very much just did not accept it. You know, it was like, whatever, I'm in it hard rock, even though the race ended up getting canceled. I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop me and continue to power through, even though I had a deep awareness, a deep knowing that I was not right physically or emotionally. I was like really in a dark place myself. And then it wasn't until I couldn't run anymore because my Achilles flared up and my ankle was just a total mess, but I keep pushing. I kept pushing. So I, then I'm training on my bike, crash my bike. And mm -hmm. then it was finally like, okay, bro, you need to stop. You know, this is the moment where you just stop and you have to let things settle and figure out whatever's happening internally and let those things heal before you can start moving forward as this, you know, identity of an athlete anymore. And so I, I, so yeah, resonate with your description of that fall in that <clears throat> intensely, you know, life-changing experience and near death experience really did allow you to address a deeper 
uh, a potentially a, like a deeper thing that you needed to fix within yourself to, to move forward. And, you know, I was just telling you that I re-listened to your podcast with Billy Yang uh, over the last couple of days. And you got, I mean, Billy just did a masterful job in that interview where he sort of talks through everything that you've been through in the last five or six years. And I want to direct people to to listen to that. Um, and, you know, I don't want to make you talk about the same thing. And I really just kind of want to plug holes and, um, you know, talk about sort of what's been going on since that conversation, because mm -hmm. I think you have a lot to, to sort of tell people, but I'm also curious, like, you know, of course, most people will know your story after you had this near death experience yourself, you're healing, you're getting back to normal life, you get remarried, and life is moving on. And then another just insanely just tragic experience engulfs your life. And that is the passing of your wife in a ski accident where you're actually with her. And we'll get to that in a sec. But I'm curious about like, that in between period, right? Because it was like three and a half years between your accident and Laura's death, I think. Did it feel like you were starting to emerge from the pain? Like, did it feel like you were starting to heal from your own near-death experience, both physically and psychologically when the second one happened? Like, what was that in-between time like between the two? Yeah, um, yeah, just... Yeah, I mean, sorry, just to take one quick step back, but it, it is interesting, um, you know, as athletes, you know, we, we can often fool ourselves that, you know, going for a run um, is like, it's the panacea, <laughs> you know, and moving is the panacea. And it's 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 one coping mechanism and it, it's a great coping mechanism and we're incredibly lucky to have it, but it's one of many, you know, like sitting, sitting down, actually spending time, um, having other outlets um, is also really, really important. Having some form of, form of uh, you know, whether it's writing or another form of art or, you know, cooking or whatever, having multiple outlets makes you a far better, healthier person. And I, I had one outlet and it was physical expression. And the problem is in the moment of like, you know, at that point, my deepest trauma I lost the only outlet I had. So out of sheer survival, uh, I had to learn other coping mechanisms, which made me a far healthier, uh, better rounded human. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's just the truth that there's always that silver lining, isn't there? Yeah. And, and there has to be, because otherwise it's just, it's just horrible. And so I think, you know, and, and maybe it's, um, you know, in nature of, you know, you do these, really long events and, you know, mountaineering things. And you, you kind of have to find like some form of beauty in the, in, in the darkness and the pain, or because otherwise it's just pain. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's why we get drawn to these things. And so that, you know, so I did, you know, that's something I have learned from, from running hundred milers and ultras and is, you know, trying to find some form of positive in the dark places, because mm -hmm. that's ultimately why, why we do these things to get drawn to them. And then, um, and then also learning, um, you know, to, to not look too far ahead. Um, you know, you, you realize that, you know, these things often aren't, aren't linear. Um, you know, you sort of go aid station to aid station instead of like, you stay on the start line. Of, There's <laughs> always a metaphor for ultra running, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah, no. And so <laughs> it, it is often my reference point. So, you know, it's not, it, but, you know, I, I have learned a lot of life lessons through training for sure. And it, it applies 
um, in a lot of very important ways. Um, but I think if it is your only way of dealing with things, if it is your only life reference point, then you're probably not leading a very balanced um, yeah. life ultimately. Um, so then going back to this question of yeah. after your first marriage ended and you have a near death fall yourself, and then you find this new beautiful relationship and you're coming back and getting your health back. You're doing races again. You're getting in touch with your physical expression again, but not using it as a crutch. You're doing it for the love of it. Did mm -hmm. it feel like you were reemerging into this new Adam Campbell 2.0? I, I just feel like I want to <laughs> figure out like, what yeah. was your life like in between these two things? No, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, you know, it, like Laura, Laura was an incredible human and she really opened me up, um, you know, allowed me to really, really feel a, a deep kind of love and vulnerability and just connection to another soul that, you know, even in my first marriage, I had not frankly felt mm. uh, to the same degree. Um, you know, my first wife and I, we got, you know, we, we'd met when we were 20 um, and we were together for quite a while, you know, we, and you change as, as, as people over that, that length of time. Um, and, uh, you know, and she's an incredible human an incredible person. And just, you know, we, we grew apart, um, as, as we aged and her sort of life paths shifted, but no, very much. So, um, you know, I, you know, it was, you know, I started climbing a lot more, I started backcountry skiing a lot more. Um, I started doing a lot more writing, um, you know, Laura and I traveled the world a lot and just, just to travel, you know, like not, not with a specific not to do goal a race. in mind. <laughs> you know, like, Wait, people do that? that? Yeah, I know. After <laughs> that point in my life, it was like, you know, you'd go with a specific objective. Um, and so finally we'd actually just go and travel and it was incredible. And of course we'd go and run and, you know, surf or scramble or whatever when we were in these other places, but that wasn't the primary point of being there. The primary point of being there was to enjoy the experience. And that was something that Laura really kind of shifted my perspective to. I remember one day uh, we were out ski touring and uh, we were approaching the summit in, um, uh, in, in Banff National Park. And you know, it's, a, it's a really, really beautiful part of the world. And we were, you know, going up this, uh, this ridge and, uh, you know, we were maybe like 20 or 30 minutes away from the summit. And, I started to get a little bit eye of the tiger, like, you know, let's, let's be a little, little summit fever. Yeah. And we got there and she's like, she stops and she's like, no, I think we should just stop here. And I'm like, why? She's like, no, well, the good skiing ends here. We're here to ski. And I was like, no, but, but the summits are there. <laughs> she's like, but no, but we're here to ski. And this is this, like, that's not enjoyable. Like that just looks like windy and like horrible. Why, why do you need to go up there? And I was like, I actually didn't have a good answer. I was like, I don't know. I'm like, you're so right. Like, this is like, that's not enjoyable. This is where the pleasure ends. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So she really, really shifted my perspective that way. And, um, you know, forced me to, you know, she, she could charge, like she moved well in the mountains, mm -hmm. but she'd also be just as happy to sit there and like sketch. Um, and she, you know, we, we would go and do that instead, or, you know, go fly fishing or, something at a much slower pace. Um, and it was, it was, it was really, yeah, it definitely shifted my entire life perspective. Yeah. So it's been two years now since Laura passed, I guess, just to set the table or just to 
provide context for those who don't know your story. Again, I think most people will. And for those who want the much more detailed version of it, again, I would just highlight Billy Yang's podcast uh, where you guys sat down. I think it was last summer. Um, and I'll link to that in the show notes, but maybe just sort of tell the listeners what happened in a nutshell. And then, um, yeah, I kind of want to talk about sort of how things have been since then. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, um, a a friend of mine and I, um, he's, he's a really well-known ski guide, uh, in Canada, um, and just a a phenomenal skier. Um, we're going to go do a, a backcountry day, uh, in Banff national park. And, um, and Laura and you know, Laura also loves skiing and um, she'd actually done a steep skiing course with this, uh, with this guy, um, you know, a few months before, or sorry, the, sorry, the year before. And then, uh, so this was January 10th of uh, 2020. And so we went out for this, uh, for a, a casual ski day. It was really just like a, you know, a group of friends out skiing. And it was, it was a, a touchy avalanche day. Like we, we knew that there's avalanche forecasts you can look at beforehand. Um, and the rating was considerable for the day, which is it, it's probably the most unpredictable kind of terrain. And so we, we picked an objective that, you know, we thought was manageable for the day. And, um, you know, we're all very experienced backcountry skiers. Uh, you know, said so he's one of the most highly regarded ski guides. And Laura and I have the highest level of avalanche training. And, you know, we're in the backcountry, you know, 60 to 100 days a year on skis. Um, so yeah. no, no, know how to read snow fairly well. Um, and we were, you know, we were, we'd, we'd had a, a really fun day and it snowed quite a lot. It was really stormy. And, uh, we were skiing this one aspect and kind of moving our way, um, you know, right to left over these sort of like little tree lines. And, uh, so we skinned up the ridge, skied a line, had a, had a really good powder run. We already had the skin track in. So we went up, skied the next little shoot and then finally make over to the third shoot. And, um, we were, it was basically our last, last line of the day. We're at the top of the ridge and we identified all the hazards. Uh, we knew that there was a little creek at the bottom. We'd identified a, a safe area um, to sort of regroup. Um, and so for, for people to explain to people, like this is like proper backcountry skiing. Like you're like you're you're quite out there, you know, there's no cell signal. Like we're we're deep in the in the mountains in the Canadian Rockies, so it's quite remote um area. And so um, Laura skied the line first and, you know, skied this like knee deep powder and was having a great time. And then Kevin skied the line second and he dropped in a little bit farther right than Laura. And I moved forward to watch Kevin ski the line because he's a beautiful skier. And, um, as I moved forward to watch him, um, I, I triggered, um, basically, uh, an area of like weak snow not not to get too deep into the, the snow yeah. science and it mm-hmm. it ripped the entire slope in my feet um so the the area was like under under pressure um and the what i stepped on to release the entire slope of my feet and so um this 80 meter wide um crown um so what's that like 200 feet um 200 foot crown about and it's it went anywhere from about a meter wide uh, in depth to 40 centimeters um because it, it went wider to narrower yeah ripped up my feet and then ran the entire uh 400 meter length of the run um so mm-hmm. 1200 1200 feet and um i i w- i started to get caught in the avalanche and i was able to stop myself on my ski pole 
Um, and, and I sat there and I watched this, uh, this avalanche rip below me. And um, I, I start yelling avalanche um, as loud as I can. And uh, there's a huge sort of powder cloud. And when it settles, I quickly moved uh, like out of the line where I was. So I wouldn't trigger a secondary avalanche on the, on, on Laura and, um, and Kevin below me Yeah, moved over to the next sort of ridge line and skied down as fast as I could. And when I got down there, um, my partner, Kevin said he saw Laura in the trees and he saw her scurrying. Um, so he's like, so we just started yelling Laura's name. And then when we realized she wasn't answering, we, when you're backcountry skiing, you have uh, these avalanche beacons on you. So sort of, um, yeah, little things that transmit a signal. So we, we pulled out our, our, and we start performing our search and, um, these things, they start drawing us into this creek bed. And so we realized that Laura had been buried in this creek bed. And um, just due to the nature of how big this avalanche was, she was in a safe in a safe spot. Um, but the avalanche went really so big. big. And presumably the, the powder cloud or a bit, the slide took out the trees where she was standing as well. Um, and so I don't know if she had moved uh, somewhat out of the safe area to, to look to, to see if I was in the avalanche. I, I'll never know. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's kind of, yeah, you know, these are the things that you sort of wrestle yeah. with. But she was buried under 12 feet of snow. And, um, you know, we, we were, we were, it was, it was quite a complicated search as well because it was on quite a steep slope and, um, and the debris and, and tree branches sort of made made the digging quite hard. And so it took us 45 minutes to actually get to Laura because you can't dig straight down. You have to right. tunnel in because otherwise the snow would uh, would keep bearing onto you. So we had to start digging about 30 feet out to tunnel in towards her. Um, and then when we got to her, her her feet were still upslope with her with her head. Um, at the bottom of the slope and so we it took us another 45 minutes to fully get her out of there and that was just hell like in every every way possible yeah yeah well thanks for describing it again and you know i can't even begin to understand i mean just your description of calling her name and not getting a response that must have been agonizing in real time. Were you panicked? I mean, were you, what, <laughs> yeah, were you yeah. frantic in, in the search? I mean, what was your emotional state like? It, Cause obviously that's not conducive to executing a good search and rescue, but this is your wife. No, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, initially, you know, when, when I, when she didn't respond, you know, your initial thought is, okay, she's probably like buried, um, you know, but you know, maybe not that deep, but then when, when you, you get the four meter reading, um, that instantly sort of changed the game, but, um, no, and, you know, but you don't allow yourself to have that thought. Um, the, the only thing is you have to have to get her out. Um, and, you know, and Kevin, um, did a really good job at giving me tasks, um, and sort of counting it down. And so he really controlled that because I was on the verge of losing, losing it the entire time. Um, and I, I even remember, you know, at one point digging and, and thinking that I was getting tired and just getting so mad at myself that thinking that, um, and then, uh, when we finally got to her and we could see her face that, that, 
that really broke me because I mean, her face, she hated being cold and her face was blue. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, she was wearing, she was wearing mitts and her, her left mitt was off and all I could see was her ring finger. Like she was clearly trying to like cover, cover her mouth to, to create a, an airway, which is sort of what you're taught to do. And um, so I could just see her, her, her blue face and her ring on her finger. And um, that, that was really, really hard. Um, and, you know, I, I asked Kevin if he, yeah, he went up to her and um, we cl- he cleared out of her airway. And I asked him if he could feel a pulse, and he lied to me and said that he could. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, we'd we'd called we'd called for uh, search and rescue at this point uh, to come out um, to to get her out. And when we finally like were able to get her her body out of uh, out of the back of the hole, um, the only way to actually get her out is I had to like pull her up onto me and then crawl up the hole and then pull her up on so like drag her out of the hole and mm-hmm. it was that was that was it was in, it was incredibly hard um and then uh you know we we performed C, uh, we performed cpr on her and um we weren't getting any kind of uh any kind of a pulse you know so we we you know we took all the clothes that we had in the emergency blanket to try to keep her warm until the search and rescue crew came and um when the search and rescue crew came, I actually, I knew, and Kevin knew um, the, the search and rescuers as well. So seeing the look on their face as well, um, you know, when they clearly knew how serious the situation was that, um, you know, that was really, really hard. And uh, when they finally came back and so they, they removed Laura by, um, by air helicopter. Um, mm-hmm. So you get long lined out under the helicopter and when finally they came and took Kevin and me, that's when I, I, I broke down completely. I just started screaming and yelling. And uh, when they dropped me, when they dropped us down at the nearest road, I just completely collapsed. And um, yeah, I was not in a, not in a good state anymore, but I mean, I, I, I kept it together as best as I could. Um, you know, I, I, I did, I definitely did some screaming as I was shoveling Um and just yelling at Laura, telling her that we were coming and, and, and all that. But ultimately, you know, one, one job and that's to, to try to save her. And, um, you know, they were able to, to revive a pulse, um, once they actually warmed up and, you know, the other, the other, the other sort of thought I had is, um, you know, it, when people go hypothermic, uh, there's actually stories of people surviving quite a long time. Right. Um, yeah. Hypothermic, it can kind of preserve the body. It's, it's incredibly rare. Um, you know, when somebody's buried for more than 15 minutes, like your chance of survival is really, really Very low. low. Yeah. We know this intuitive, like you just know this. But it would have, it would have been a miracle, but at least you had some glimmer of hope that. Yeah. And you have to, you have to have hope and you have to keep believing. Um, but, uh, you know, and so they, you know, eventually, I went to the hospital, which was a few hours away by car. Um, so they had to fly her to, to Calgary. Um, um, and when, uh, when we finally got there, uh, you know, they said that they had this pulse, but you know, her, her organs weren't, weren't doing so well. And then later that day, they, um, they told us that they weren't going to be able to, to save her. And, uh, it was basically just a matter of time. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we just, you know, sat with her um, and talked to her and held her as, you know, basically she died. My God, man. Yeah. 
I, I can't imagine. And especially having her be at your side when you went through your own near death thing, which you said earlier really should have killed you and for the roles to be reversed and for her to actually succumb. I just, I can't imagine. And it's now been two years and you posted a couple of weeks ago on the two year anniversary on your Twitter, you said two years ago today, I triggered an avalanche that buried and subsequently killed my wife, Laura Kosakowski. I'm still processing and learning to live with the guilt and grief of that day. I can't describe how much I miss her. And of course, accidents happen in the mountains and it's not your fault, but I want to talk about those two words, guilt and grief. Cause I don't think you really talked about that with Billy. And I think mm-hmm. both are really worth exploring with you. And, you know, as we just said, or as I just said, guilt is a feeling that it comes naturally in this situation, mm-hmm. having set off the avalanche yourself just by sheer, you know, random bad luck. How have you wrestled with that? burden of feeling guilt yeah um no i mean guilt guilt's a huge one i mean you know the the worst thing i've ever had to do is um was was call laura's family and tell them that this happened um you know like that and that i didn't know whether or not their daughter was alive um like that's so horrible um and uh yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I definitely deal with that on in a, in a huge way because you know you, you know, you have this romantic notion that you'll save the people you love um, and that you'll find this extra strength, and I wasn't able to. Um, and having to live with that is is incredibly hard, um, you know. And although you know we say that you know you know the risks going into the mountains and you know that they're you you don't really. You know, you can you can say these things, but until you've actually gone through it, it's it's a completely different different beast. And um, and you know, and not just me. You know, I, I think about and and this is something that had happened with my first accident in Rogers Pass. Is I and I really really thought about the consequences of my my choices going in the mountains and sort of moving in this more technical, dangerous terrain and. Um, just how inherently selfish it is because my actions impact so many other people. My choices impact so many other people. Um, you know, my accident in Rogers pass scared the hell out of my family. Um, it put my partners in a horrible position, like, you know, Nick and Dakota thinking that they were watching me die. Um, yeah. like they thought they were coming to a body recovery when they were, when they were scrambling back down to me. Um, you know, the search and rescuers, like all, all these people, like there's this trickle down effect um, to it. And then in this case, it's the same thing, you know, like Laura was a family doctor in Camor, um, and just like a wonderful member of the community and sort of like the broad reach of, um, of this accident on, on the, the wider community was really, really deeply felt. Um, and that was, I was painfully aware of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you know, you can, you can tell yourself that, you know, mountain accidents happen, but I also made a mistake. Like I stepped onto a convex roll, which like, you know, looking back on it, I, I, I realized what happened and, you know, the, that slope was wind loaded, um, you know, and, and we had talked about it, but it, 
it was basically, it was like worst case scenario on top of worst case scenario. And, um, you know, and, and, and I can't take it back. So how do you wrestle with that feeling of guilt now two two years removed? Has it improved at all? Have you come to a place where you can forgive yourself? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, um, I don't, I don't think I, 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 I forgive myself, but I like it happened. Mm-hmm. And I sort of have, you know, two, two options. Um, you know, it's sort of, I, I, I live hating myself or I go on trying to, to find joy in life. Um, and, and I, and I've, and I've gone down both paths. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, it would be doing a disservice to Laura and to everybody else in my life. Um, and, and to myself to, to live a life of just, uh, of hating myself and just living in sheer guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to come to terms with that and it's not always been easy. Um, and I mean, right after Laura died, I remember, um, and, I, and I may have talked about this in the podcast of Billy, but I was walking by the river in, in, in Camor, Alberta and middle of winter, incredibly, incredibly cold. And I walked past the river and I was just thinking how much easier it'd be if I just jumped because mm-hmm. I knew what the next few, like what the rest of my life would feel like living with that. And, um, and ultimately not doing it because I didn't want to cause pain, more pain to other people. And, and honestly, part of it too, Dylan was it, I wanted to punish myself as well as like, no, you did this thing. Mm. You actually have to live, live with, with it. The consequences. As well. You have to live with the consequences. Um, that's, that's kind of, you know, and, but I also understand how somebody would make that choice. Um, and I wouldn't judge them for it either. Um, yeah. you know, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, uh, um, there's, there's a, a, a famous case of, um, uh, of this a young Alpine climber, Hayden Kennedy, um, who was skiing with his, his partner, um, in Montana and she died in an avalanche and he wasn't able to, to rescue her. And, uh, you know, and he, he ended up committing suicide, um, the next day and, uh, you know, I've been in touch with his family a little bit as well. Um, and they've reached out to me and they've been wonderful supports, but, you know, I, I, I understand the headspace that he was in and, um, had, had I not been with Kevin that day, um, had it just been me, I think that maybe I wouldn't have been able to live with it, but in the, in, in this circumstance as well, I'm like, okay, I was with another trained professional it wasn't you know we there was a, a group of us making yeah. these decisions there's a group of us trying to do the you know there's two of us trying to do the rescue um so while i don't you know like i'm, I'm very very sorry that kevin has gone through this with me and it's, it's had an impact on his life as well in, in a quite a profound way um in some regards i'm, I'm, I'm grateful that he was there as well um, yeah yeah so on the subject of Hayden Kennedy and, and his partner, it makes me wonder. So Inga Perkins, like I think it's important also to say her name. Inga Perkins, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And I remember that story because Hayden Kennedy is from Carbondale, Colorado, a town that I've lived yeah. in. Rowing Fork Valley is a second home to Harmony and I. And um, I remember seeing him speak at the Wheeler Opera House and he was famously this young up and coming world-class uber talented climber who also had 
the values of like this purity to him. Cause he was the guy who ended up, what did he do? Saratore. Sar- he, he, he chopped the bolts in Saratore yeah. famously after freeing the root. Yeah. 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 With uh, Jason Kruk. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a, an aspiring or an ascending legend of climbing still very young person yeah, and, and his dad is one of the best known um alpinists of all time as well michael kennedy and yeah. editor of um you know uh, a number of the the big climbing magazines yeah mm-hmm. um, but and a really really tragic story and, and i mean laura and i had actually talked about uh, that incident after it happened as well yeah and, and it talked about hayden and how um difficult that must have been for him um to come to that that conclusion yeah so what I was getting at is I know there exists these support systems of yeah. widows and widowers and family members of people who've died in the mountains. And I wondered if you've been connected with those types of groups and what type of support you've been able to find from that or or what support have you been able to offer people in similar positions? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and that's, you know, one of the unfortunate aspects of living in a, in a mountain community is, you know, death is, you know, there is more, um, more incidents of it, unfortunately, in these mountain, in these mountain pursuits, it is, you know, as much as we say driving to the trailhead is more dangerous, it's statistically, I would actually, sure, maybe more people die in car accidents, but as a proportion of users, backcountry travelers and climbers, definitely there's a higher rate of like fatalities and really you know, um, bad injuries than in the normal population. So um, unfortunately, there are a number of other people that have suffered similar um, incidents out there. And I, and right away, I was contacted by a number of uh, of people. Like I, I'm qu- quite good friends with um, with Brett Harrington, um, and who is the partner of Mark Andre Leclerc. Um, they were actually living at my place in Canmore before Marc Andre went up to Alaska, um, and so you know, so Brett had had reached out. Um, uh, there's another famous uh, climber, David Lama, um, who yeah. had died in uh, in the Canadian Rockies um, a, a couple of years before as well, and um, and his partner had also reached out, and it just so happened that after. Um, after this uh, this incident, um, there was actually a support group getting started in Canmore, um, and Kevin, who was with me on that day, uh, was one of the founding members of it, as well as um, Barry Blanchard, who's a very famous Canadian alpinist, and Sarah Huenikin, who's a, um, a well-known ice climbing guide, started this. It's called the Mountain Muskox, and it's, it is a support group in Canmore um, around people who suffered uh, fatalities and trauma in the mountains. Um, and so, so I, I did have this, this level of sort of emotional mentorship, um, from these people who suffered like quite serious trauma for a number of years and who are at different stages of, of grief. Um, and then since then, I, you know, I, I have had people reach out who've suffered, um, you know, loss in the mountains, um, whether it's their, you know, whether they've lost partners to the mountains or have lost partners while out with them in the mountains and, there is an unfortunate community of people who, who reach out and, uh, you know, it's not the club you want to be a part of, um, but there that you do offer a, a form of, you know, everybody goes on their own journey. Um, but if you can share a little bit about what you've gone through, I think it does help. And that's one reason why I've chosen to be quite public with my, with my grief and grieving um, is because having people reach out to me did help me a little bit. And I figure if I can 
help even one person. Um, not that it will ever right the wrong I've gone through, but at least I can live with myself to some degree. Yeah. And it gives me, it gives me a sense of purpose because I ultimately like, I not a lot makes sense to him. Like, yeah. To me. Yeah, none well, of this makes sense. I mean, so speaking of that, it really doesn't make sense, man. And as somebody who has just been an active follower of yours for more than a decade, I can't help but feel just this deep sense of unfairness, right? Because you were famously struck by lightning at the hard rock 100 back in 2014 you nearly died in your own fall two years later and then three years after that you lose your wife in a terrible avalanche ski accident and i i have to admit like as i continue to follow you and you continue to kind of go out in the mountains i'm both confused and impressed in that I admire you for staying true to the things that you love doing. But also I wonder to myself, like how the fuck do you still go out in the mountains? What, what can you say about that? Like, how is it after those things and that glaring unfairness in my mind that you can still go out and do that and, mm-hmm. and not expect the same tragic consequences yeah um no i mean and uh you know i think there's a i think it's reinhold messner has a famous quote it's um and it's uh you know mountains are aren't fair or unfair for just dangerous um and so i think if you you know it's it's not you know the the mountains the the mountains aren't out to get me (laughs) you know they're they're just a dangerous place to be in and it just so happens i spend a lot of time in them doing somewhat dangerous pursuits um and unfortunately the odds have sort of stacked against me a few times and and there's definitely you know if i look at it i've made mistakes um you know the you know the lightning strike in uh, in colorado you know it wasn't a direct hit so um you know that that may have been fatal had it been but you know realistically it's when, it's it's like an example of i mean does it make you feel cursed in some way <laughs> no like, no but it's a, no it's it's interesting um you know and i've i've asked uh you know i've asked friends of mine who you know who i really admire in the mouths I was like am i am i dangerous like am i do i take unnecessary risks am mm-hmm. i am i really stupid and you know just to, just to find out i'm like am i am just i to get up? honest feedback yeah just yeah. get honest feedback mm-hmm. it's like am i am i a fuck up out here should i not be doing this and you know, their answers are, you know, they say, no, you know, they're like, no, you're quite a conscientious mountain traveler. Um, and, you know, and I've done, uh, I've done lots of training, you know, like I've got like fairly decent hard skills in the mountains. Um, I think perhaps I, I progressed a little quickly into the mountain pursuits. And in retrospect, I should probably should have done more of the, the hard skills early on. And so maybe this is just a little word of advice to anybody out there who's um, looking to get into the more sort of mountain side of mountain running or backcountry skiing, you know, like take your time to really develop those hard skills and do it in a slow way, you know, progress into the light and fast from that, but start with like the traditional, learn how to do the fundamentals really well, mm-hmm. learn how to tie your knots, learn about the different systems, learn the heavy and stuff. slow before the light and fast, hundred <laughs> percent, go heavy yeah. and slow at the start and, you know, go out with the old timers who've been doing it for 50 years because those guys were alive. They are clearly making 
some smart choices out there and maybe they've gotten lucky along the way, but they've probably learned and like reflected on those things. Um, so those are the people, you know, like, you know, the Alex Holmes are amazing. They're like super awesome. Um, but they also have like, you know, they have like a really, have, their fundamentals are totally dialed before they go and start doing all the simul climbing. And those are like advanced techniques. Don't start with the simul climbing. <laughs> you know, so it. <laughs> what's the balance between joy and fear now mm-hmm. when you're out there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's primarily joy. Like when I go out into the mountains, like I, I, I seek like, you know, pleasure in the mountains and the way that I try to move and travel in them is pleasure. And then on occasion, um, you know, I might do something that is like on paper kind of scary or a bit more dangerous, like skiing, skiing a steep line or doing like a, a bigger sort of mountain traverse or something. But I, I, I don't seek that out. Um, it's if everything feels lined up and is, is perfectly in place for that on the day, then I'm then, and it's, it's the right thing to do. Then, um, then, then that'll be one of potential objectives, but I, I, I basically back down from stuff all the time. Um, you know, I, I, I don't do a lot more of when I get done, put it that way. Um, and, uh, it, it's interesting. I think with like a lot of mountain stuff, if you're too objective focused, um, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Like one of the better ways it was put to me is, you know, say you want to go climb Mount Robson, which is the highest mountain, the Canadian Rockies, getting up Mount Robson, you say you want to go to the Robson area. And that gives you a, a much broader option of things to do when you're out there. It's like one of the things could be climbing Robson peak, via, yeah. you know, you've got like multiple ways up it. So one option could be this like super gnarly route. Another one could be this like ridge run up to the top or the other one could just be sitting in the valley going for a nice trail run and staring at Mount Robson. And so all of a sudden you're not like, you don't have this one single objective in mind because if you're too objective focused, you're more likely to get yourself in trouble. You lose that mental flexibility. Lose the mental flexibility. And also it's like, there is great pleasure and value in each of those objectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just need to be logical. Um, Yeah. Um, So, So yeah, no, but it is, it's something I ask myself all the time, but ultimately I do feel a lot of joy and happiness and comfort when I'm out in these wild spaces. And, you know, I, I do feel like a, a spiritual connection to, to Laura and a deeper connection to myself and to the partners that I'm with. I just, you know, the, the, the friendships and um, connections I have with the people I'm sort of roped up with or, you know, ski touring with, making decisions with or, or climbing with or running with the conversations I have out in those places and the emotional connection I have with them are just so deep and profound um, that it feels like there's value in it for Amen. me. Um, and I'm still curious about it. And, uh, but I definitely have changed what I'm interested in doing for sure. Um, and who I'm interested in doing it with as well. The free trail podcast is brought to you by gnarly nutrition. Gnarly is an awesome sports nutrition company based in Utah that specifically focuses on us, the outdoor and mountain sport athletes of the world and OMG are their products. Amazing. I've been using the fuel to O drink mix for the past six months and have been blown away by the product for long runs, workouts, and race fueling. The cherry cola flavor of the fuel to O mix is especially delicious. You'll never have to resort to Coca-Cola with this magical elixir in your bottles. And that is just one 
product amid an insanely robust collection and nearly all their products are NSF certified for sport. It's an incredibly valuable investment that they've made to enhance their brand's product and their brand's reputation, something I certainly very much value as an athlete. Go check out Gnarly. The whole product offering is at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your order. GoGnarly.com, free trail 15. So to move towards another super heavy subject, mm-hmm. you have mentioned a couple of times that you've been journaling and writing and you started mm-hmm. a bit of a blog that I've been keeping up on and that you've been sharing on your social channels. And in November, you wrote a post called I Fucked Up. I'm sorry, I love you. And I read it and instantly just had this explosion of sadness. Mm-hmm. So I guess what happened? What led to that post? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess, I guess another thing just to mention to people is, you know, through, through all of this, I, I have been getting quite regular counseling. Um, and I think that that's really, really important and valuable. And, and I've, I've had a few different counselors and I've worked with different people for different areas of, you know, I've got, you know, I've, I've got grief, I've got trauma, <laughs> I've got guilt, you know, <laughs> different people work well for different one of those aspects. So, um, but so what, what happened is um, last summer I, uh, I'd started seeing somebody and, you know, starting a relationship after, um, you know, after something like this is it, it's hard. It's really, really hard, especially because, you know, I still have these really deep, strong feelings for Laura. Um, and Laura is not, you know, she, she's not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, I was still very much in love with Laura. Um, and there's things you just don't want to do. Like, you know, at my house in Canmore, Laura, it was, her touch was all over the place. Like, you know, we, we built it and designed it together. Well, and by together, I mean, she did it. And I would just basically agree, you know, with like maybe like one or two little vetoes to things, but you know, like an accent wall, the, you know, the, the, the mirrors over, I just don't, I don't care about that stuff, you know? So her touch was everywhere. Um, but so I'd, I'd come home and um, I hadn't cleaned her, her clothes out. It took me months to get rid of her clothes. Like her retainer was still sitting on the sink by the bathroom. I was like, what do you do with that stuff? Like, but, you know, it, there's a bit of a gut punch every time you, you come back and you see it, but you also don't want to get rid of it because you don't want to, to forget. You don't want to, you're afraid. There's like a symbolic letting go that occurs then. Exactly. Yeah. Hard. And it kind of has to happen organically um, at its own pace. And I wasn't ready to let, let that stuff go yet. Um, but it's also just this constant reminder and sort of ghost everywhere. Um, and, you know, I, so I started seeing this, uh, um, this woman and, you know, she was wonderful. Um, and we know, like, she was a friend in Camor of, of Laura and I, and, um, you know, and, and COVID happened through all this as well, you know, so all of a sudden there's this like closing off and, you know, you're having to, um, you know, had COVID not happened, I probably would have gone off and traveled. Um, and maybe have left Camor for a little bit, but, you know, all of a sudden I wasn't really able to socialize with anybody. And so you start, you know, um, you know, my bubble was me and this, um, uh, this other woman. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're kind of like forced into a bit of an unnatural situation. 
uh, we had we had a lot of fun, you know, and it was um, it was going it was just nice to feel good again and to feel a sense of joy and happiness and to laugh again. Um, you know, like the first time you laugh after going through a tragedy, it's you, you have all this dissonance. Like, am I allowed wow. to laugh? Wow, you know, like, is that okay? Like, am I allowed to feel joy? And ultimately, yeah, you, you are. Like, that's kind of the point of this all. Like, it's the point of life. Mm-hmm. But it like it it really messes with you the first time you laugh after. Um, you know, after a deep tragedy. Um, and so you have to give yourself permission for these things. Um, anyway, so we've been seeing each other and we decided that we were going to, to go to Squamish for the summer. And I was getting regular counseling in Canmore and um, we left the, the Bull Valley because, you know, we'd both been stuck there for a year and a half and we're like, it'd be nice to go somewhere different. Um, so we moved to Squamish for the summer. And when we were in Squamish, I, things were going well. And I stopped, I stopped getting counseling basically like life felt good. I was enjoying everything was, everything felt like it was going well. And, uh, my family lives abroad. Uh, my brother lives in Sweden and my dad lives in Spain. Um, we do an entire podcast on my, like my, yeah. my messed up yeah. in, in West Africa. And yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of my family's around the world, but, um, so I went to go see my family, um, over in, in Europe. And, uh, as I said, I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, uh, I'd stopped counseling for those two months and I, I was quite happy. And when I, but while I was away, um, all of a sudden I started to notice that, um, uh, this woman and I were starting to get a little bit distant in our communication and something just felt a little bit off. And so I started to like get a little bit of anxiety about that and a little bit worked up and worried and, because we were so far apart, it was, you know, the, the communication just felt a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, you kind of put that stuff aside and you don't really address it. I was like, I'm here to enjoy my family. I'll deal with that stuff when I get back. When I got back to, to Canmore, I hadn't really thought about the fact that I was going to be moving back into my house. And when I got there, all of a sudden, all of these emotions that I kind of ignored for the previous three months and it just sort of felt pleasure and light. And I was on a vacation from my life, basically mm. all came back and they just came rushing back. And uh, so I was sitting in this, in my home, um, you know, with sort of signs of Laura all over the place. And it just started to feel quite heavy and, and quite oppressed. And then uh, uh, this other, my partner, um, came back when she came back, she's like, you know, I've, I've been thinking about things and I'm just, I just don't feel that this is the relationship that I, that I want. And which is entirely fair. You know, like that's, yeah. you're allowed, you're, somebody's allowed to say that, but at that moment it was, it was too much for me. Yeah. Um, and I, and I can, I can appreciate how dealing with me through that period would have been really, really hard. You know, you know, she'd walk into my place and there's photos of me and my, my former wife on the, the mantle, you know, yeah. like, that's a lot for something to, to deal with. And, and my heart really uh, goes out to her and, uh, for dealing with that. And I can understand why she wouldn't have wanted to, um, to be in a relationship that say, but anyway, um, so, but that just led me to going and, and I was dealing and I had a horrible trip back from Europe. It just due to COVID, like my flights got delayed. I ended up having to spend like an extra night in a hotel. So I was, I, I was sleep deprived. And then I got back living in, in this place and all of a sudden, like I, I didn't sleep for a couple of nights and I, I did some anxiety about, um, about this woman coming back. And then, uh, you know, she broke up with me, which led to me not sleeping for a couple more nights. And so I, I basically hadn't slept in, you know, I hadn't had a proper sleep in over a week. And I literally did not sleep for over two days. 
And I was sitting on my couch and I'd actually gone climbing the day before with a couple um, friends of mine. They're like, Hey, something like something seems up, like just come out and just have some fun with us. And when I was out with them, I just, I, I was kind of like a zombie. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't really there. And then uh, I, I started that, that blog at about four o'clock in the morning um, or three 30 in the morning. Cause I was like, I just needed to like, something was in me, but I needed to let out and I just couldn't figure out what it was. And then the next morning around maybe 9am after not sleeping, I in a bit of a catatonic state, just like walked upstairs, grabbed every pill on my counter and just swallowed them, mm-hmm. just, just took them. And, uh, I don't really remember doing it. And, uh, moment I did that, I like looked up, there's a big round mirror that Laura, Laura bought this big round Ikea mirror. And I looked up and I saw my reflection in the mirror and I just had this like sunken, like sallowed look. And I was like, Holy, like, what the fuck have I just done? Yeah. Like it like instantly knocked me back to my senses. And it was a bunch of, um, it was a bunch of sleeping pills and like pain meds that I had, um, you know, on the counter. Since the accident, I mean, you mentioned just that passing thought, was you were walking past the river of jumping in and ending it and that being so much easier than having to face the reality of losing your wife. Aside from that little episode, had you dealt with anything that would have resembled suicidal thoughts between then and this episode? Uh, no, nothing that, nothing that was suicidal to that point. Um, and I, you know, talking to other, to, to counselors and therapists and so I wasn't actually suicidal. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have like constant, like suicidal ideations. I wasn't constantly thinking about suicidal thoughts. Um, in that moment, it was literally, I just need this pain to go away and I can't figure out how to make this pain go away. Um, in, in that moment, um, what I, what I have dealt with on occasion is definite PTSD, um, I've had some moments, um, the first time I tried skiing a steep ski line, I fully panicked in the middle of the line and just had really, really bad panic attacks and, um, you know, had to, in, in a position where like, I really couldn't panic and I had to to calm myself and sort of figure out how to get myself out of that situation. And then I was doing last, uh, spring, I did this, this big ski traverse with it, with a couple of friends and we were, we were trying to do it in a pretty fast push and, um, you know, as we were out for 53 hours and, you know, 11,000 meter ski traverse and, um, in the middle of that, just the fatigue kind of caught up to me and I, same thing, I had a, a panic attack in the middle of it and they were able to like calm me and, and sort of talk me through it, but I, I hadn't had any other suicidal thoughts. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I swallowed all the pills, saw myself in the mirror and I was like, what the fuck have I done? I ran downstairs, called, uh, called the people I was climbing with the day before I was like, Hey, I've really fucked up here. Call an ambulance. I, uh, you know, it was the middle of the morning. And so I ran over to my neighbor's place and she's eight and a half months pregnant. And I just started banging on her window. And I was like, you need to call an ambulance. I fucked up. Um, and, uh, she brought me into, into her place and I started going in out of the consciousness at that point. And same thing, like Camor is a small town. And I, I remember the, um, you know, the, the ambulance driver or the, um, you know, the paramedics and even the, the police officer, because they have to bring a police officer in these situations. And like, I knew all of them, um, you know, so I remember sort of seeing them, like recognizing them in like in a blurry state. 
and then uh, getting taken to hospital in Canmore um, before they took me to a, a, a more major center. And uh, yeah, while I was at the the major hospital, um, they came in and were like, um, the, uh, the the psychiatric doctor, um, you know, he's like, you're not, you're not under, we can't detain you. Uh, we would, we recommend that you go, um, and seek like deeper psychiatric care. Um, but we, you're not, a, you're not, we don't deem you a harm to yourself. We don't deem you a harm to community. So we can't detain you. You're free to go. But our best recommendation to you is that you, um, admit yourself and which is a, what's that like, I mean, I, but actually I need to like, just, there's one other layer to that though, Dylan, um, yeah. The hospital that I got taken to and the emergency ward that I got taken to was the same ward that Laura died in. Um, so I got taken there and I, I had this massive panic attack and this huge re-traumatization being there because I hadn't, I hadn't obviously hadn't been back to that, that unit since Laura died. Um, so I'm sitting there and I had that realization. So I'm sitting there alone, having just tried to kill, kill myself, punched in the face of the fact that this is where my wife died. Yeah. Um, oh. Sorry, um, you know, uh, 20 plus months prior, um, I was like, that's about as low. I mean, that's why I, that's why I'm just like, it's so hard to understand how you don't just feel completely defeated, right? Like, do you ever just throw up your arms and just say like, what the fuck is the point or what is the lesson here? Like, what is the universe trying to teach me that I haven't learned already. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I do think about that quite a lot. Um, but I also, I don't know. Life's just, life's just hard sometimes. Um, and that's just, you know, I, but it, I that's with- true. That's true, man. That's totally true. I guess, you know, for me, it just feels like an overwhelming amount mm-hmm. of hard sometimes you know yeah. but, and but i think if you if i were to just dwell on that though like then I, I then i would just take those pills and not try to live right like if if i just if i dwell purely on on the misery that i've suffered like there's a lot of beauty in life like i've got yeah. i've had by by most objective measures i thought you like I've, you know I've, i like i you know i have i have a very loving family I've had like deep, profound love with somebody. I have like really, really wonderful friends and community. I've had incredible life experiences. I've seen incredible beauty in the world. I've got to travel to basically every continent out there. Um, you know, so, and and there's still a lot. I just like, I'm just very curious about life and like what there is still out there. Um, so yeah, there's definitely times when I'm like, God, this is, this is a lot. But it you, seems like you're just, due for like a breakthrough in the other side, right? It's like you win the Powerball <laughs> well, or something, yeah, for yeah, God's no. sake. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but also don't know what that means. Like, what does that look like? It's also maybe it's incumbent on me to sort of to make that happen to somebody yeah. as well and to build it. Um, so like, life doesn't owe you anything, yeah. <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. Well, so what was it like as somebody who's been a professional athlete for your whole life, who knows how to overcome shit? Mm-hmm. to then be admitted into a psychiatric ward because you feel like you can't be alone with yourself, that you can't mm-hmm. be responsible for yourself. You know, as athletes, we 
prove to ourselves over and over and over that we can overcome anything. Right. What was it like? Like, how did you come to a place where you acknowledged that the best thing for you was not to just try and overcome this and power through it, but instead to go to the psychiatric ward and like check yourself in and accept that help? Well, I mean, the, the way that I ultimately realized it, it was like, if I had a, you know, I've been to the hospital before because I broke my hip and my back at the moment, my head and heart are broken. Yeah. This is where you go and heal your head and heart. <laughs> Beautiful. Wow. Right. Um, just because there's not an obvious outward sign of physical damage. This is what I need to do right now to heal. And I ultimately want to heal. And I want, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to kill myself. I don't want to die. Um, you know, not, <laughs> I want to live a long and full life. Like I realize eventually I will. Um, that's a beautiful way to put it, that that's where you go to heal your head and heart. Yeah. But it, it takes courage to do that. And as oh. you talk about healing, one of the things that you say in the post that I'm referencing here, and I'll link to it, is that you realized that you needed to leave the house that you and Laura had made together in, in Canmore. Mm. Yeah. And that the weight of her absence was making it so that it was really difficult for you to heal and move on yourself. Yeah. Have you, have you moved out or what? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I have. And uh, so, it, you know, it's interesting once again, um, you know, the, the thing about forcing myself to stay at that psychiatric uh, ward, which, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're surrounded by people who are, you know, whose life has been very, very hard for a long, long time. Um, and realizing that I'm no better than these other people we're all in the same place was it's incredibly humbling. But once again, forcing myself to, to stay in one place, to stay still, to sit and sort of deal with my shit um, was invaluable. Uh, just like I had previously in the hospital after my accident, Rogers pass, forcing myself to sit and deal with my shit was, was invaluable. Um, but yeah, no. So while I was there, I was like, I, I, I need to, to let go of, um, of a lot of this. And in, in this case, it meant moving. So I, I'm, I'm actually living in Squamish, British Columbia now. Um, so I did, I, I got out and I, uh, I, I rented my home in Canmore and, um, I chose, I was sort of debating between a few, few towns, but I have a, like a, a deep connection to, to Squamish and I have a lot of really, really good friends here. And so it was really important for me to move somewhere where I already had an established community. Um, so I thought that was going to be really important. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been in Squamish since December 1st. Yeah. yeah. So another thing that I'm curious about, just is sort of a, a silly detail of this all, but another thing you mentioned in your blog post is that you had stopped drinking and using pot. And mm -hmm. I think for people who are going through intense, traumatic personal experiences, of course, it's nice to have a pressure release valve. And for some people it's running, for some people it's a beer, it's pot. Mm. I'm curious sort of what, what motivated that change and, and not necessarily just those, the small detail of, of alcohol and pot, <laughs> but just like, yeah. what are you doing to have the pressure release valve or like how, what are you using as a support system or in place of substances? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I think there's a lot of people who, 
you know, I can say for myself, if I had been through the same thing, I absolutely would have started using substances <laughs> heavily. Yeah. No, for sure. And, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm aware that I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to those, uh, to substances, you know, like I definitely have like a natural tendency towards them. Um, and they, they have quite a strong effect on me and I, and, I, and I'm aware of that. Um, and, uh, I mean, the, 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 the first reason why I stopped using them was, was frankly, I was, it was put on, um, you know, psychiatric meds at the time yeah. <laughs> and, you, you know, and you're told to stop using them. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So that, that one seems pretty easy to me at that point. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm currently, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no longer on, on the meds I was on and I do occasionally have a beer, um, now, but it's more very occasionally, not, not on a regular basis. Um, in terms of, uh, outlets still, you know, physical activity is super important to me. Um, I still do something every day, whether it's, you know, backcountry skiing or cross-country skiing or climbing or just going for a dog walk. Um, so time outside, uh, connecting with people, um, yeah, reading and writing are still a really, really big part of me, uh, quite a lot of journaling. And, you know, now that I'm, now that I'm starting to have a bit more of a routine in, in Squamish, um, trying to get, you know, once again, it's, it's really trying to find that, that, that purpose. Um, you know, so what, what can I actually do? Um, like what, what is the meaning of my life? <laughs> I'll yeah. like, cause I do have, you know, I I've had some life experience. I have certain skill sets. How can I best apply that in a way that feels genuine to me? And that ideally can help other people as well. So, so talk about that because also in the Billy Yang podcast, you said something that I found very profound and it was that you said something to the effect of right now I'm just surviving and yeah. looking for purpose. And I know you know you well enough to know that you were a practicing lawyer for some time in your life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that is something that gives you a deep sense of purpose what are you doing to find that? Yeah. So, um, uh, so I'd, I'd started a practice in Canmore, um, a law practice and then through, and, and I actually, I went back to it, but I just couldn't bring myself to care about, um, the type of law I was, I was doing. Um, and that's doing a disservice to my clients and, and to myself. Um, I'm, I was doing a solicitor practice. So you're, you're basically like, you know, reviewing and writing contracts and, mm-hmm. and that side of it. And I just, I had a really hard time caring and um, I was going to get myself in trouble with the law society. <laughs> Frankly, yeah. you know, I was like, you really, you know, you owe it to your clients and yourself to, to give them your full attention. And I wasn't capable of it. So I, um, so I left, I left the, uh, the practice I was part of and, um, you know, I've started to do more, uh, consulting work with Arcteryx outside of just um, just my role as an athlete. Uh, so sort of shifting that responsibility. I'm also, you know, I'm aware of it. I'm no longer like an elite uh, cutting edge, you know, like runner. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a metal pin in my hip. You know, yeah. a, apparently that's a, a bit of a limiter to running fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so I, so I've been able to, to pivot that a little bit and they've been really, really accommodating in, in that sense. And um, sort of using my, my knowledge of the trail running world and then um, starting to do a lot more writing and hopefully um, build that out a little bit more as well. 
Mm. I mean, you, you have a gift for it. And I was actually going to suggest that, you know, I mean, your story is a deep and heavy one mm-hmm. and part of your healing might be to share more about it, write a book or yeah. something like that. And I think in that hopefully being healing for yourself, it might be really touching to other people in the world as well. No, for sure. It's, I mean, but it's a, you know, it's an intimidating, scary process. I'm um, sure. Yeah. Starting and, you know, do you, you know, if you're, if you're going down that road of writing, um, especially something, you know, that I would want to share, you know, it's going to be deeply personal. And I'm, I'm aware that once again, anything I, I put out there, you know, it's my take on things and other people would have different perspectives. And I'm very conscious of, um, you know, the, the impact that anything I share would have on, on people that are close to me. And I want to be quite like respectful of that, but I'd still also want to do it in, in an honest way. And um, it's re-traumatizing. Right. Putting yourself out there, writing this stuff down, there's there's great value in it for sure. Um, and I think there's great therapeutic value, but it's it's bloody hard. Like, you know, retelling these stories, uh, reliving it and, um, you know, opening it up to, to outside people. It's, it is re-traumatizing a lot. So it's, do I really want to do that and and I and I do but I need I needed to feel grounded somewhere first and I'm starting to feel grounded now um and it was more is important for me to to build that more solid foundation before I venture down this path of like burying myself raw again yeah. because if I did that on a shaky ground I think it would have had quite bad uh it, it would have been very hard to handle sure. and potentially could have been had negative outcomes in the long run. So where are you in the grieving process right now? I mean, Laura passed two years ago now mm. and you just experienced this. I don't know if you'd call it a breakdown, but it, it seemed like a deterioration of your mental health, obviously to a point where you needed to get, help. And much of that I'm sure is just born from the fact that your whole world has been turned upside down and two years goes by in the blink of an eye, even though it seems like a long time, I'm sure the pain is still raw, uh, at least on occasion. Where are you in your sort of healing and grieving journey right now? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd say, you know, you, it, it never goes away and the, the, the intensity of it can still on occasion really catch me off guard. Um, even though you've, you've lived it multiple times, but you definitely learn to integrate it in your life. It's no longer fully acute. Um, but there's definite times when it's really, really hard. And there's just a lot of, um, you know, like other people in Laura's life, like Laura's family, you know, they're on their own grief journey and, you know, we're really, really, really close, but, you know, I might be at one stage, they might be in another phase and you try to talk about it and it doesn't quite mesh and your world can, it, it can, everything just feel a little bit unstable. And so you just have to have like a lot of empathy for where other people are at in the process and where, where I'm at at different times. And it's completely nonlinear. Like I could feel like everything's rolling along and then all of a sudden just have this huge gut punch that sets me way back. But Ultimately, despite what happened in October, November, um, I, I'm actually feeling like very optimistic and hopeful about about life and um, 
No, I've got like, I have a lot, I feel like I have a lot to look forward to. And I, and I do feel that I'm building um, towards something that I do feel that my foundation is feeling a lot more solid now. And that feels really, really good for sure. So you're not just feeling like you're just surviving as you described to Billy. No, exactly. I feel that I'm now at a stage where I'm, yeah, I'm no longer just purely living in the moment. I'm like, you know, feral instinct. I'm now starting to to look forward and and, and plan ahead a little bit. Good and it man. feels, you know, it feels wonderful to be in that position. What that exactly looks like, I don't know, but I'm now at least able to go into that mental space of thinking forward. Yeah. That makes me very happy to hear. Yeah, thanks. So let, let's start winding down. I wanted to talk about this concept of acceptance. Mm-hmm. And in one of your recent blog posts, you mentioned that you had read Brad Stolberg's book, The Practice mm-hmm. of Groundedness. I have just finished it a couple of weeks ago as well. And I think it's the first chapter that talks about acceptance was my favorite part of the whole book. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that's really the first step for all of us to heal from trauma. Have you come to accept the passing of Laura? And have you come to accept your situation in life as it stands now? And is there anything just with this, this concept of like, not fighting reality, but opening up to it that resonates with you from this experience? Oh, no, no, absolutely. No, hundred percent. I mean, there, no, I I very much like I've accepted that it happened. Um, You know, it's, you know, there's times when I I can't believe it's happened. Like it's, it's still, it feels surreal that she's not around and that she's died and I've I've gone through it, but I I very much accept it. I, um, so with my, my, with my, my therapist, um, we have this, this saying and it's OPA and it's observe, permit and accept. So, you know, like you observe the situation, you, you permit it and then you sort of accept um, you, you permit the, because like life is just full of these like really strange, unexpected situations. You know, you're when you're trying to like bring two people together, whether it's through a friendship, just like an interaction, you know, there's, you, you can't control what outside forces are doing. You can't control what nature is doing. So you can sit there and like, you can observe it. You can permit it to happen. Then you have to accept it. Um, Opa. Opa. Yeah. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my, like my new sort of saying for, for life. And it applies to like the most minute of situations to the most extreme. And it's your, yeah. your therapist or your counselor who brought that into your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me too, in one of your posts, you talked about maybe this is the same person, the same counselor who said that you can't high performance grief. Yeah. Talk about that concept real quick. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it, was, it was talking a little bit about, um, you know, it, 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 you, can, you, can't, you can't force it in any way. There's no, there's no ultimate outcome. You know, like when you're, like when you're a high performance athlete, you, you set a goal you work the steps backwards uh, to achieve that goal. And then you start like, you know, progressing through the steps to, to ultimately, you know, get the outcome that you're hopefully desire. Yeah. I don't really know, like that you can't, you'll never, there is no finish line with grief. Mm-hmm. 
right? It's just, it's a constant part of my life and it will be a constant for the rest of my life. Like Laura will unfortunately remain deceased and I will constantly live with the fact that I was involved in the avalanche and I was not able to save her. That's a reality of mine. I cannot change that outcome, no matter how many times I wish it. I unfortunately cannot. Um, so I, I, I can't change the outcome, but I can sort of um, live my life in a, in a purposeful, sort of happy way, which is kind of the opposite of high performance because I cannot affect <laughs> the outcome. I cannot go back and affect the outcome. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I cannot force my way through the stages. You kind of have to just like sit with it, accept it, let it do its thing. And your next step might actually not be forward. Your next step might actually feel like a regression, but it's all a part of the integration process. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. why I, that's why I asked about the acceptance thing, because it is contradictory to the instinct of athletes, I think, sometimes who are intrinsically born with a feeling of I can control this, I can overcome this, I can do this, mm-hmm. I can push through this. Mm-hmm. When sometimes the answer is to OPA, right? Well, for sure. And you know, a lot of our, our language, um, and historically that is being how we've been to- it's it, it was I found it quite interesting initially after Laura died that I found this almost um there was almost like a generational gap in how people told me to to deal with it. And there was definitely some people, um, and typically of, uh, of an older age, age bracket saying, you know, chin up, you know, head down, back to work, deal with it. Like not, not universally. Um, but that was definitely an attitude. And there was a time when that was sort of how we were told to deal with issues by not dealing with them. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah. Um, and we all just know people who've done that, who've gone yeah, through exactly. things. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and perhaps that works for some people or for a length of time. Um, but that wasn't a good path for me. Um, and for me, it was better. And fortunately I'm in a position where I, I was, I did actually have the grace of time and the financial stability to be able to, to deal with my shit, um, and to sort of give it this time to work through this process. You know, had I had, three kids who all needed to get fed and I had these external pressures, my life may have been very, very different. And the choices I may have had to make were very different, but given my life circumstance, um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I have the, the option of, um, letting things sort of roll their, their course. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adam, man, it's so great to have you on the podcast and talk about this. And I just so admire your courage to be so open about everything that you've gone through. And there's no doubt that not only this podcast, but everything else that you've done, sharing things on social media and just like being willing to not be too proud to show the hard shit that you've been through will help people. And I hope you feel that. So let's close by I'm just talk about the future. You said you're finally looking forward, right? What's, what's next for Adam Campbell? I mean, I know you're, you're always an active person 
And it sounds like you've got some fun things that you're doing with Arcteryx, but what, what broader impacts are you uh, hoping to have on the world? What is, I don't know, what does 2022 look like for you? Um, no, I mean, well, 2022, as I said, like it, it, it feels very much, um, I'm also finding that my, um, my need to be as active is definitely dwindled a little bit. Like I'm not feeling this, like this big drive or urge to constantly need to be doing something. Um, I, I very much enjoy it. And I, you know, and I try to, to, to be active and get something done, but it's not, it's not this, like this, this deep need. Um, so it's really listening to, to where my desires are. Um, and if, you know, if it feels right to go for a backcountry ski, you know, I'll, I'll go for a backcountry ski that day. And if it doesn't, but I'm not, and then I'll go to the coffee shop and go and enjoy hanging out with a buddy at the coffee shop instead. Um, but ultimately it's building a, a, a strong foundation again, and really, um, learning to, to sit with that and, um, think about what the future, <laughs> uh, once again, it's just sort of allow myself to think about what the future is going to look like and start to put, move the blocks in place, um, for that. And yeah, I mean, I, I do, I mean, I, I would like to use my experiences, um, even though they're just anecdotal, I'm not a professional, um, to help other people, um, whatever that looks like, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think that there's probably great value in taking people into nature who suffered some kind of, uh, trauma or loss or uh, emotional turmoil and sort of just moving through terrain with them. Um, you know, and, and I think that there can be really deep healing in that. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a place for the traditional therapist model where you sit, sit beside each other and talk. But I also yeah. think that like, if, you know, forms of moving meditation and, and counseling, I think it'd be, it'd be nice to help some people in that way at some point. Um, Dude, moving counseling, hiking therapy. That's yeah. a brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I see, I see myself sort of going down, down that road to some degree. Um, and trying to, you know, build a strong community of friends in, in Squamish here. And, um, you know, and I do want to have a family. Like I do, you know, that's, it's important to me. Like, you know, love is important. And I believe that that's something that Laura uh, would want. And, you know, luckily for me, I, um, I, I, I believe that that's something that's, you know, in my future <laughs> and it's happening, you know, like I'm, I'm lucky. I, um, you know, I've, actually recently started seeing somebody and it's going, it's going really well. And she's a wonderful person and, um, you know, and obviously very, very understanding and, and sympathetic to, <laughs> uh, um, to me, but then I, but I also don't want to be a sympathy case. You know, you all, I also sure. need to be in a stable place to be a supportive loving partner back as well. So. Yeah. Well, thanks again, man. Honestly, this has been one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the podcast. I really do appreciate you being so open. I will challenge you to keep writing, keep sharing, <laughs> man. Even if it is re-traumatizing, I hope it helps to exercise some of the demons and to help you come to terms with, um, you know, that feeling of guilt and responsibility. And, you know, I just have nothing but empathy and admiration for you for everything you've gone through and your willingness to be open and share about it. And I appreciate you doing it here on the podcast too. Yeah, no, thanks. And, and you're, you're doing a wonderful thing here as well. And it's uh, you know, I get a lot of inspiration from all the wonderful guests that you've had and I look forward to, to following along and um, you know, it's, it really is a brilliant community. Um, and I, you know, I've really appreciated all the, 
the the love and support that I felt from the broader community um, has been truly wonderful. I mean, and it all started back in you know uh, 2017 when I ran Hard Rock um, or sort of struggled my way through Hard Rock there. Dude, those photos of you at the finish line after <laughs> kissing the rock, man. Oh, oh was, <laughs> I was that was that was painful. I'm not sure that's uh, the smartest thing to do, but. Um, you know, I really, I felt like the love of everybody out there on, on the course and, um, and over the last few years, the the messages of support that I've received from people have been really, really touching and heartwarming. And so thanks everybody out there. And um, it's, uh, it, it really, really means a lot. And just like a, a little, a tiny little thing is, you know, if you're thinking of a friend, um, if you see somebody who's hurting a little bit, just reach out and just say, hey, just thinking of you. Just let yeah. them know it. Like, why the hell not? Or if, you know, if you love somebody, you, you know, I, I love that you say, you know, love you. Like, it's just say it because it may be the last time you ever say it. It may really help that person in the moment. Don't, you know, don't even say, how are you doing? Just say thinking of you. Yeah. That really goes a long, long way. And it Isn't has that so true. I mean, yeah. like just human contact and human communication is like such a healing and beautiful thing, right? Like mm. I've recently caught up with some old friends who I don't catch up with nearly enough. And it's just like the joy I feel of just mm. having a short conversation with somebody who I used to be very, very close with and who life has just forced, you know, a little bit of distance between us. It's just like, that human connection is the most important thing in the world. And yeah, it's, it's, it is just powerful to receive a simple text, isn't it? No, it, re- it really is. And uh, it doesn't, doesn't take, doesn't take much. Um, and one, one little, I mean, a lot of people, you don't really know what to say um, when people have gone through a trauma and one, and I, I think saying thinking of you is better than necessarily saying, how are you? Um, because one thing I found is I'll get a lot of messages from people saying, how are you? And the onus is suddenly put on me Yeah, wow. I have to answer when I'm going through something and it can actually be kind of overwhelming when you're already feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. Cause then you have to verbalize. I feel like shit. Yeah. Exactly. Or you have to pretend like you don't. Exactly. Wow. That's a, um, that's actually a very, very powerful insight there. Yeah. Yeah. So that'd be, um, you know, we're, we, we just don't, we don't know what to say. It's, it's kind of interesting that like emotional intelligence isn't taught in schools, you know, because ultimately it's probably the most important thing we can all have in life, but that'd be my one little, one little just saying for anybody, if you, if you know somebody who's going through some a hard time and you don't know what to say to them, just say, Hey, thinking of you, if you need anything, let me know, yeah. you know, or just, just reach out that way. Um, I think that there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Well, Adam, thanks again, bro. To be continued. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, I'd I'd love that. It'd be wonderful. Yeah, and I look forward to, to following along the progress here. It's exciting. Thanks, bro. What do you even say after a conversation like that? Um, Thank you is probably all I can say. Thank you. Thank you to Adam for his inspiration that he has given to me as an athlete. Uh, Thank you to Adam for the example that he sets to the rest of us. And uh, thank you, Adam, for the courage to be so open and honest about some really challenging subjects. Please go visit the show notes from this episode. Again, I would highly recommend the podcast that Adam did with Billy Yang. 
I link to that in the show notes. It's amazing. You must listen to it. I also link to the article that we referenced early in the conversation about storytelling in mountain sport. I managed to find it. It was GQ, not outside, as I said in the episode, but it's an interesting read if you are into sports and content and sponsorship and things like that. And then I also link to Adam's Instagram profile and his blog, where I would highly recommend you give him a follow to keep tabs on his journey. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsors, without whom we would cease to exist as a company. First, Speedland. Second, Gnarly Nutrition for their support of the show. Thank you guys so much. You can find links in the show notes along with the relevant discount codes for these amazing products. Please do visit those links, support our partners. Appreciate you guys so much, really do. Uh, Really appreciate you entrusting me with your time and attention and for trusting me to bring you important conversations. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey. Until next time, love you so much. Talk soon. Bye-bye.